Are you ready for a new journey this fall? Join Dr. Patricia Cooney Hathaway, Professor of Spirituality and Systematic Theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, as she leads an inspiring online course called An Introduction to Spirituality. In this college-level course, dive into the depths of the Christian spiritual life, discover how spirituality goes beyond religious practices, and how it shapes how we live our faith every day. Dr. Cooney Hathaway will guide you to understand God's presence in your life and equip you with tools to deepen your relationship with God. Visit shms.edu slash online to learn more or enroll today. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I am thirsty and excited for summer. If it sounds like we are rushing through this episode, it's because we are literally moments away from summer break from this podcast, and we have a summer office party that we are going to right after this. Yes, and we also have a summer drink on tap that is being made for us right now by O'Hare fellow Chris Parker. Welcome to Jesuitical, Chris. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. And this is your your last week of your fellowship at America Media, uh, which is a year-long editorial and writing fellowship. But I assume this right now is the highlight. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> bartending. Yeah, Jesuitical. Yeah, bartending. making drinks for you guys. That's what it's all about. So if you are a college senior uh, listening to this, or a college junior, rising senior, that's how that works, right? Um, if you want to bartend on Jesuitical, uh, or you maybe produce Jesuitical or uh, help with uh, any number of things at this great place we love to work at called America Magazine. Uh, check out the Air Hub Fellowship. W- yep. Would you recommend it? Good year? Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, working with great people here at the magazine. Um, writing, writing great stories for us. Yeah, yeah. All sorts of reporting. Um, getting to live in New York the year after graduation is so special. Media capital of the world. So, uh, yeah, it's been a blast. You I... reported some really, really serious stories and you also managed to go out with a bang. Yes, yeah, this this most recent story that I wrote about the Grimace shake uh, at McDonald's and the phenomenon of uh, Twitter coming together, rallying together around it. It was a, a good way to end my time. I was delighted to learn that uh, Grimace has a Irish Catholic uncle, so, yeah. which I would have never learned had I not read your piece. So no, thank no you. better advertisement for the O'Hare Fellowship, <laughs> which you can learn about at o'harefellows.org. You can see the application process and what it's all about. Now let's get to the drink. Yeah, now yeah. I'm, I'm thirsty. <laughs> let's do this. So okay. what, are we, what, are we, what are you making for us? Today we're drinking the humble cousin of the tequila sunrise, the rum sunset. But we are nothing similar. if not humble on this show. The rum sunset, <laughs> a humble. I like that. And also it's a sunset to the season. So this is true. Great. Very topical. Nice. Super good. Yeah. So this is uh, super simple. It's just uh, two parts OJ to one part rum. So for this particular one, we used um, eight cups of OJ and four cups of rum for the big pitcher that's sitting in the fridge waiting for the party to happen. Great. Um, but the real flair comes right before you serve it. I have in my hand uh, the container of grenadine syrup, which we've learned is both cherry and pomegranate flavored. And we have to take our uh, mixing spoon and hover it over the drink and very slowly pour our grenadine so that it filters over and we get kind of a kind of a sunsetty effect. Oh, like coming. a blending of colors. Yeah, that's supposed to be the idea. Beautiful. I think it's supposed to. I think your spoon's a little small. Settle. Oh, is that it? Is that the problem? <laughs> 
I think, oh, there we go. oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, there we go. Oh, yeah. So, the, so it's like deep red at the bottom, mm-hmm. rising up to a, mm-hmm. a nice ombre. Mm. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's the right, beautiful. The right shading. This right? is the prettiest drink we've had on Jesuit. Truly, I think. there we go. Truly. Well, All cheers, right. you guys. Hey, Chris, cheers. thank you so much. To a great season. Thank you. Cheers. Delicious. All right, Chris, you got to go make some more cocktails for yes, the rest I of the do. group. So <laughs> thanks for coming on the show and thanks for making our drinks. Thank you, guys. Have a great summer. See ya. So we have a great drink and we also have a great guest who you're going to have to tell me about because I wasn't actually here for it. Yeah, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Cardinal Michael Cherney with our producer, Sebastian. He sat in for you and did a fantastic job. But Cardinal Cherney, this is a big deal. He is the head of the Vatican's social justice office is what I'll call it in Vatican speak. That it means he is the prefect of the dicastery for promoting integral human development. But he's co-author of this new book that he's got out called Siblings All, Sign of the Times, The Social Teaching of Pope Francis. So we had a chance to unpack that with him, talk about Pope Francis's social teaching, um, uh, the environment, migration. And then we, I mean, really got into some fascinating topics like uh, this enduring battle over the legacy of the Second Vatican Council. This is uh, the ecumenical council that took place in the 60s where the church changed a ton of things. What it really comes down to is, you know, how does the church relate to the modern world? And uh, there's no shortage of opinions or answers on that. And so fascinating uh, insight from someone who is really close to Pope Francis, who is, you know, interpreting him for for the rest of the world. And I got to bring some of my complaints directly to the top about both the Senate and Vatican speak. So uh, stick around. I did get schooled a little bit a couple of times. I can't wait to listen to that. And then in Signs of the Times this week, we're doing something a little different for our season finale. Uh, Instead of looking at the news of this week, we're going to look forward to what's coming in the next couple months while we are on summer break. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So it is sort of end of the school year. Um, my wife's in grad school. She's taking finals right now. And I'm not really jealous of her right now, like during finals week. But, you know, I often find myself seeing her studying, going to class, making grad school friends, being like, huh. That's pretty cool. I, I wonder what it's like to be back in school. But I've always thought, like, I don't know. I don't have time to do that. I've, I've got this career. I can't travel anywhere. Um, I'd really love to, though, sometime. Well, I have good news for you, Zach. You could earn a master's degree focused in Franciscan theology right from your couch if you wanted to. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I'm Obviously, it's a Jesuit podcast, but we are also, we love the Franciscans. We're ecumenical in that sense. Yeah. And this master's program from the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego is a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection, which sounds right up your alley. Yep. And with its online format, the program is designed so that you can learn at your own pace while connecting with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment. It's about learning to think critically, consider different views, and analyze sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, a true Franciscan value. So embark on a 24-month mutually transformative journey with the world-renowned faculty and instructors from the Franciscan School of Theology. All you have to do is visit sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters to learn more about the Master of Theological Studies Franciscan Theology Program. That's sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters. Are you a Catholic artist or artisan looking for creative and spiritual support? Artisans of Jesus helps writers, musicians, designers, podcasters, marketers, animators, influencers, and more give and receive mutual support. It's like a co-op. You can offer your talent to another project and receive help as well. 
Artisans of Jesus can help you learn new technical and media skills, and members have access to a team of chaplains for spiritual conversations. You can even showcase your work on the website, too. This is your opportunity to collaborate with like-hearted people on your creative passion. Help fellow artists express God in all media. Visit www.artisansofjesus.org to find out more. That's www.artisansofjesus.org. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And as I mentioned before, we are actually looking forward this week. That's right. What's coming up, Zach? So just a couple things that we wanted to uh, make you aware of. So the first one is that uh, Pope Francis, um, he's taking a staycation during July. So uh, imagine that Vatican News is going to be pretty slow for the next month. Yeah. So basically, he has canceled all of his audiences for the month of July. I mean, you've you've lived in Rome. You know that the city (laughs) shuts down during the summer, right? So yeah, Pope July Francis is just or... doing what the locals do. Yeah, it's also so hot in Rome during the summer. I mean, I hope that, I know he's sort of like views air conditioning as like this thing that's maybe ruining the planet, but I hope that his age, he's sitting in an air conditioned room for these couple of months and actually takes a break because even he just came out of the hospital, but he's been going kind of a hundred miles an hour with his meetings. Exactly. And then come August, he's got a huge event. It's going to be World Youth Day in Portugal. Pope Francis is going there from August 2nd to the 6th. Uh, He'll be leading masses, um, a way of the cross, a vigil, uh, meeting with young people. So we will have two of our colleagues at the World Youth Day. Father Ricardo De Silva and Jerry O'Connell will be there. So you can follow their reporting at americamagazine.org. Yeah. And you know their voices, Father Ricardo from the Preach podcast and Jerry from Inside the Vatican. So we're keeping it in the family. Um, What's the last thing that we're going to be gearing up for? Well, of course, come the fall, we have the Synod on Synodality is finally coming to its first major global meeting in Rome. Yeah. And so we talked about this on last week's episode. We took a look at the working document. Uh, What are the topics that were covered there? Um, We're still processing and unpacking this. But one clear takeaway is that it's going to get really interesting really fast, I think. There's a number of contentious topics. There's this novel way of talking about these topics that are going to come up that I think we're going to be wanting to pay attention. I think we'll see some news over the summer if I'm putting my prediction hat on. There's usually some missives that go out. Cardinals give interviews here and there. People get to ramp up. We'll have we'll know who's attending the synod. So that news is all going to be happening this summer. So stay And tuned. the working document makes great beach reading. So you still <laughs> have time. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, all right. Now stick around for our conversation with Cardinal Michael Cherney. Joining us in studio is Cardinal Michael Cherney, the Prefect of the Diacastery for Promoting Integral Human Development and the co-author of a new book, Siblings All, Sign of the Times. Welcome to Jesuitical, Your Eminence. Thank you. And sitting in for Ashley McKinless is Sebastian Gomes, who, like his eminence, hails from the land up north. That's the real reason why I'm here. Yes, we wanted to make sure you felt at home, and so we brought a Canadian on to be with you. I always tell my colleagues here at American Media that we're also a mission of the the Jesuits in Canada as well. So Very we got to cover that church as well. Don't don't forget it. <laughs> so we're going to spend a little bit of time just getting to know you and your ministry. Um, and then we're going to pivot to some of the you know really big questions that your book comes up with that are facing the church and the world today. Um, before we get there, you, know, you are both a Jesuit and a cardinal, which uh, some would find a bit of an odd pairing, I suppose. No, more odd than a Jesuit pope, I suppose. Uh, but one of the, I remember when you were named a cardinal, one of the interesting things was you weren't yet an archbishop. And so 
Uh, I believe you were officially an archbishop for like a day. Is that correct? One day? Could you tell that story a little bit or why, why it had to be that way? About uh, 10 days or two weeks before I was going to become a cardinal, the Pope told me that I had to become a bishop first and mentioned sort of, and by the way, I'm ordaining on the 4th if you want to come if along. If you want to stop by. <laughs> so I said, sure, I don't have a better offer. <laughs> so on Friday, the 4th of October, the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, I was ordained Archbishop of a plot of uh, desert somewhere in Tunisia. The name is Beneventum, and our claim to fame is that we were a suffragan of uh, uh, Archbishop Augustine of Hippo. Oh, um, no kidding. So that's a, that was a great honor. Otherwise, I don't know anything about my uh, diocese, which the next day became my former diocese. So that's all I can tell you about being an archbishop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you know, Pope Francis has, has appointed you a cardinal, obviously, but you're also involved on in, in a number of very important uh, missions of the church that are that are headquartered in Rome. Um, you're on a bunch of different dicasteries. You're you're traveling a lot. You're writing books that are interpreting the Pope's, you know, teachings, magisterial teachings for the church and for the world, um, which means I presume that you're a pretty close collaborator of Pope Francis. So uh, my first question is just, how's he doing? Fine, fine. He, he's doing fine. And I would say that uh, the more good news he hears about the Synod, the finer he is. And uh, what's he like to work with? What's your working relationship with him? Well, he's very good to work with. He's very trusting. Um, and when he asks you to do something, he expects you to do it uh, without uh, coming back and asking about each step or, in fact, any of the steps. So I think it's one of the carryovers carries over from... Uh, from Jesuit life, I think we have that style or tradition that when you uh, get a mission or are asked to do something, what's included is planning it and carrying it out, not uh, not just executing. Now, you've been in Rome for much longer than, than Pope Francis has. So he's now Pope for 10 years, right? Um, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you date back to like maybe in the early 90s when you first started, you first came to Rome to work for the Curia, and then you've been working in different offices in, in the Vatican. So. Um, 23, 23 years, years old, told wow. yeah. So a lot has changed in that time, I can imagine. And I'm especially Including thinking... myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm especially thinking of, um, you know, when Francis was elected, he was given a mandate to reform the Vatican bureaucracy, right? The offices of the Vatican that are the governing offices for the universal church. Um, and, you know, and here we are 10 years later, we have a new constitution, the new governing documents for that bureaucracy. Um, so in that time that you've been in Rome, you know, what maybe what's the what's the biggest change from the time that you started in the 90s or the early 2000s, even to 23 years later? Well, I, I would say that uh, during the first my first stint in Rome, the first 11 years, it was mostly an unknown. I, of course, caught a glimpse of one Holy Father or the other, um, but it wasn't uh, I guess I couldn't call it a working relationship. Then when I came back in 2010 to uh, work with Cardinal Peter Turkson, of course that changed, but I had more to do, much, much more to do with what he needed and what he uh, was about than the relationship with the, with the Vatican itself. Maybe because the other um, superiors with him, the secretary and the undersecretary were both Italian, so I think that uh, they, uh, let's say, managed or maintained the relationships according to their best lights. But Is siloed maybe a good word? Like people were kind of in their own 
in their own worlds, managing their own things? Um, no, I would. I mean, there is, of course, there's siloing, but no, it's not a question of siloing. It's more, uh, maybe it's uh, fairly typical of government that um, uh, each department uh, is, to a certain extent, its own, its own uh, culture. And- yeah, culture, its own realm. And if there's coordination that's higher up, it's not us. It's, it wasn't up to us to coordinate. Maybe mm. we could put it that way. And um, so, as you mentioned, uh, Pope Francis came in with a, I would say, practically uh, an overwhelming mandate mm-hmm. to, to reform. And that reform has, has now taken, taken various uh, forms and taken various stages. What, what didn't people like? Why, why were they asking him to reform it? Because it seems like it was pretty universal. People were like, this is broken. We have to fix it. Yes. Well, so then every, everything that you can think of is probably true. In other words, it's, I mean, no, no catalog of, uh, um, let's say, reformables was ever made. So mm-hmm. um, I don't, much less agreed upon by everyone. But to put it a bit simply, I would say, on the one hand, the bishops uh, wanted to be treated differently. The re- like the resident bishops, the bishops who are coming from around the world, or the bishops exactly who are bishops like uh, Bishop uh, Archbishop Bergoglio of Buenos Aires, Aires right. wanted to be treated differently when he came. So that's one huge thing, and and that's uh, very strongly reflected in mm-hmm. uh, Predicati Evangelium. And we've heard that from all the bishops who are going to Rome. So when they go and they meet with the different dicasteries, like with your office or with the Holy Father himself, everybody comments about how it just feels much more conversational, much more open. It's dialogical. There's a two-way communication there. It's quite amazing considering how brief a time we've had yeah. since the reform began. It's amazing that uh, they experienced so much change so quickly. That's not typically what people say of us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to ask someone who works at the Vatican this question, and so I hope you'll forgive me a little bit, but is someone whose job it is to kind of try to make, we'll call it Vatican speak, um, sort of intelligible to young adult Catholics, lay Catholics, um, non-Catholics, non-Catholics like even, you know, on the bubble. There, there are some words that I, I, I find myself kind of stumbling over trying to explain to people, even just like dicastery or integral <laughs> human development or um, the Latin titles of documents. Uh, do you think that these kinds of words um, resonate with, you know, a modern audience or, or if they're even relevant, should I be trying to translate them or should I... Well, I would say yes. As a as a, an American Catholic, you should be translating it into American, and that's more your job than ours because you're here. You know the language, you know people's questions. So translate, and if you don't know how to translate, ask. All but, right. But I would I would put it in that sense. I would put this very squarely on your guy, your shoulders, <laughs> not not on ours. I we, like, we have a mandate now from the cardinal. No, I like that. No, uh, big responsibility, but. So, so, so work your way back then and you say, okay, so I'm responsible for, for, uh, expressing what the Holy Father and the, and the Vatican say in American. What should be the original language, presuming that we don't speak them all? And the answer is, well, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it is, it's going to be that language and it's going to have its characteristics and it's not going to be American. So no matter what we speak, no matter how we write, no matter what vocabulary we use, you've got a, a translation problem, which is not just linguistic, but also cultural. I think that's true. I, I know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
really quickly, and then we're going to move to the book. All bishops have pectoral crosses, um, the cross that you wear around. Um, yours is kind of striking. It's it's very different than ones that I've seen. It's wood. It's not gold or silver or any kind of metal. Can you just tell the story behind it? Well, the, the story is that a, a good friend from Chicago uh, was came to Rome to help me with uh, becoming an archbishop and a cardinal. But but before that, he spent a couple of days in uh, Sicily and he met somebody and said to the fellow who happened to be an artist that he needed to go to a religious goods store to buy a cross for somebody, some friend of his who was going to become a, a bishop. And uh, I guess he told the artist something about about me and the artist said, I'm not taking you to a shop, I'm taking you to my studio, I'm making the cross. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and so the artist who uh, is very dedicated to the vocation of Sicily. His slogan is, uh, Sicily, which doesn't welcome, is no longer Sicily. And Sicily being like on the southern part of Italy, right on the Mediterranean beyond, Sea. Beyond, beyond the southern part. Beyond the southern part, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, his passion and uh, the Holy Father's concern for, for migrants and refugees uh, coincided. And so this is a contemporary cross, and um, it... Uh, represents the uh, tragedy of the Mediterranean and the tragedy really of all people are forced to flee. And uh, I, we have little doubt that Christ would identify with them very, uh, very strongly, very directly. And uh, what most catches people's eye is the nail. And yeah. mm -hmm. it, it's a bit odd because I think there's nails in every cross, but we don't see them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, shifting to the book, Siblings All, Sign of the Times. This was super relevant for us because on this podcast, one of the things we do every week is we have a, a segment that we call Signs of the Times, where we're trying to sift through Catholic News of the Week and talk about it. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just give us a little quick history of where that phrase comes from. We know we were obviously conscious of it when we chose it, but uh, I, I certainly learned some things from the book. Our guess is that Sign of the Times is the single most impactful expression that comes out of the council. I don't think that there's any other expression that is so quoted. The Second Vatican Council, 1962 to 1965, that brought the world's bishops together and set the church on a, on a, a new trajectory to serve the modern world. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that because I lived through it, so I didn't think I had to introduce it. <laughs> you didn't, so you wisely introduced it. <laughs> well, and that, and Zach and I were talking about that earlier. Like, we we're both of a generation that, that wasn't alive at that time. But like, I remember, and I have a background in theology and history myself, so I was introduced to the council in my studies, and I was always fascinated by it because the shift toward a church that was more open, toward dialogue, reconciliation, all these key words, and we're, we'll get back to signs of the times, but that was really appealing to me as a young Catholic who had a lot of non-Catholic friends and, and wanted to you know, work in the church or be part of the church. Um, but we don't have a memory. We don't have a living memory of that thing. And it's, it seems now very kind of controversial, or at least there's debates about the council resurfacing and we weren't a part of. So the fact that we have you here and you, you know, you were a young man at the time, right? I think you might have been, I, I don't know if you're in formation with the Jesuits at the time, but. Well, so the fact is that the book was born because of conversation with, uh, with Christian Baroni. Your co-author. My co-author, who is uh, around your age. And uh, we f fairly soon we recognized that we both had a deep interest in the council because uh, I lived through it and he studied it. Hmm. 
So we, we recognized that uh, each of us had a partial experience and that the two experiences would uh, complement each other. And uh, interestingly enough, the, the Holy Father, as he explains in, the, uh, in his preface, um, he's older than I am, so he, in one sense he lived through it, but uh, he doesn't say that that's why he's so rooted in the Council. Rather, it's because the Council was so implemented in Latin America that he lived it by living his life in the Jesuits and in the Church. So um, Christian and I have that complementary uh, experience of the Council. And um, I've checked with other people my age, and they say that's exactly how it was for them too. In fact, one, uh, one uh, theologian, great theologian, said to me, um, yeah, we didn't, uh, we didn't have to uh, read the Council because the people who wrote it were all our professors. <laughs> <laughs> we knew them all. Or, but that means that we thought we knew the Council, and that doesn't take into account what actually happened at the Council, how the, how the decrees were uh, produced and uh, how how hard and how well the Holy Spirit worked. Sure. And, you know, even like, you know, talk about what actually happened. This phrase, uh, signs of the times, was way more controversial than I had ever thought of or heard. And I guess, you know, if you were there living through it, you would have, you know, been familiar with the debates at the time. But why, like, why was that such a big sticking point? Or I have some ideas, but... Well, I'm not sure that it was all that debated. I, th I think it was... Uh... It was more like a, a fact of life. I don't know if you noticed that we, we point out that, that, that the phrase is hardly used by the council. Hmm. I think five times in all, something like that, in the whole council. You would think that all the fuss that we're making about it, that it would be on every second page. That's well, right. It it's, it's like the signs of the times and then the whole concept of the spirit of the council, which are kind of two... I don't want to say controversial, but they're, they're, they're points that people identify with the council uh, you know, even if maybe the people who are at the council, the council fathers themselves, weren't necessarily overthinking those things. Yeah, the the only the only uh, expression which is even more uh, odd, in the sense that it's uh, obviously at the heart of the council, uh, is the word synod, which surely comes from the council but was not even used once. Right. That's another one of those words that I need to translate into American. <laughs> um, synod on synodality yeah. is a bit tough for us. Yeah. One of the um, this is. Do you want me to give you a suggestion? Sure. Yes, please. The real meaning of synod is a verb. It's to synod. To synod. And to synod is the verb that uh, corresponds to the church. How, how does the church church? The church churches by synoding. Hmm. Which? The church synods. It's simple and also opens so many other questions, which I think is, <laughs> is the point of why we're all coming together this October and next. But I was looking, reading this book and considering this idea of the signs of the time, so being open to the modern world. I, I, it sort of clicked for me that there is this like massive debate functionally about how the church should relate to um, the outside world, history, the, the marching of events, however you want to phrase it. Um, and stuff. On, stuff. Other stuff. Real stuff. And on one side, you have people that it's this view that, okay, the church has this doctrine, this revelation. This, and This treasure. This treasure. Not, not to use heavy words. This yeah, treasure. This treasure. And it will use that to convert stuff, the outside world. 
And on the other hand... And bring people on board. Yes, yes. And on the other way of looking at it is that the church continues to find treasure or God's grace or what have you in the world and outside stuff um, that will continue to enrich the church's understanding of itself. Do I do I have the basic terms of the debate correct? Your your first one was better than your second. Okay. All right. <laughs> what do I have? So what, I, what do I have wrong about the second one? Well, the, you should have started the second one the same way you started with the first, namely the church has, has a, a treasure. treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, uh, and this, this is uh, classically Pope Francis, do you treasure it by keeping it or do you treasure it by sharing it? Mm. Do you swim in the gospel or do you spread it? Well, that must be American. That must be American. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that. Try translating that in Italy. That might be tough. Yeah. Um, but, you know, once I, once I kind of realized this is sort of the terms of the debate, I look, went and looked back at my, my entire life. It's like, okay, at times I have felt... Certainly that, you know, I had this treasure and I was going, the outside world was bad and I needed to protect this treasure in it because that's what kept me safe. Um, and so, and I've kind of gone through this process of, you know, trying to figure out what the other half of that means of being open to it. But I see this playing out in the church all the time. It is not entirely a settled question, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It, it, is, that, is that correct? I mean, is it settled at the Vatican, what, what the answer to this question is? No, I, when put so broadly and so inclusively, I think it's um, it's not something that can possibly be settled. Um, but we could say that the emphasis um, in uh, council, in recent councils before Vatican II was certainly the first. The, the faith needed protection beginning, especially with the reformations. Of, and, um, and that was true until Vatican I, inclusive. And uh, that is not true of Vatican II. So, in that's, so that's oversimplifying it as well. But he, uh, here comes something which, which is also in the Council, but is especially emphasized by Pope Francis. And this is something that people that we here in America don't appreciate so much uh, as uh, pretty central. And that is uh, the identification between uh, Christianity and Europe. We don't, here in America, we don't realize uh, that we actually partake uh, largely, though not exclusively, of, of a European form of Catholicism. And, uh, and we project that on the whole world. We don't see why people don't just, you know, cool it and live with it. It's that, because that's the way it is. And that's not the way it is. And uh, in Europe, we have the experience may, maybe more than here in America that the de-Europeanization of our faith and our life as a church is going on in a certain sense, whether we like it or not. In other words, it's not our, it's not something we're, we're busy doing, it's something we're living. But it makes huge difference also in your original characterization. I mean, are we, are we protecting or saving or uh, defending the treasure? Or are we sharing it? And if you want, I think you were suggesting this, discovering what it is by sharing. When you put it that way, too, it makes me think that it might be harder for you to overcome this or think about it in the more inductive type of, of, of way uh, if you come from a position of, of power or historical influence, if you have more, because your, your characterization of this being more typical of the Western church strikes me in that regard or of right? decline right because you're, you're seeing like every it's being watered down and people are going to mass less or what have you like it's 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 slipping away so i have to hold on to it and we see like resistance to 
you know, the, the types of church that Francis is trying to build saying, you know, we need to be a field hospital. I, I pulled up quickly on my on my computer his famous line from Evangelii Gaudium, which is his first uh, major teaching document on the joy of the gospel about the missionary impulse of the church. I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and clinging to its own security. I mean, so if you're a person who has come from a place where the church has typically had a lot of influence or had a lot of power, had a lot of security in his words, clinging strikes me as, a, as like a, an appropriate word for what I'm seeing. And that's really difficult to change. So this type of conversion, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about what your insights are and, and how you try to bring them out in the book. Like, how do we how do we try to foster that conversion and engage in dialogue that will no, I, I don't think we foster it. I think, uh, at least again, quoting Francis, uh, it's the poor who will save you from uh, what you just said. And we get to the poor because we're going out, right? It's sort of like a, you know, if you are more walled in, you don't, you, you aren't actually able to go to the peripheries. Well, except that's what's so interesting about the synod process, because by inviting everyone to share, uh, I think uh, many, uh, many parts of the church discovered that the poor are with us inside, but uh, again, marginalized, excluded, uh, not listened to, without voice, frustrated, uh, and so on. So um, the synod is interesting in the sense that, it, that by, by inviting everyone to share, it cuts across some of the divisions that you articulated earlier. Did you know that you could earn a new master's degree focused in Franciscan theology from anywhere in the world? That's right. This master's program from the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego is a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection. With its online format, the program is designed so you can learn at your own pace while connecting with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment. It's about learning to think critically, consider different views, and analyze sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, a true Franciscan value. So embark on a 24-month, mutually transformative journey with world-renowned faculty and instructors from the Franciscan School of Theology. Just visit sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters to learn more about the Master of Theological Studies Franciscan Theology Program. That's sandiego.edu slash theologicalmasters. Are you attentive to the realities and challenges of life transitions and aging? Do you want to cultivate and share the wisdom of your experience with others? Are you ready to reimagine the shape of the next stage of your life in a community of peers? If so, become a Wisdom Fellow. This is a 12-month cohort learning program offered by the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. The Wisdom Fellowship is for adults 50 and over who seek interior growth in a community of support and who seek mission and meaning in their lives, taking on roles and flourishing as wisdom leaders for their families, communities, and society. The experience kicks off with a one-week residency in Chicago. It continues with regular online meetings and discussions, includes a short pilgrimage to encounter those on the margins of society at the U.S.-Mexico border, and culminates in a pilgrimage following in the footsteps of St. Ignatius through Spain to Rome. Accompanying the group are spiritual directors, Loyola University Chicago faculty, and trusted community leaders. 
For more information, visit www.luc.edu IPS. Then click on the Continuing Education tab where you'll find the Ignatian Wisdom Fellowship. Or just click the link in the show notes of this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. concrete example um, I wanted to bring in is maybe uh, looking at climate change in Laudato Si and just trying to apply this characterization to that issue. Because in the first one where, you know, maybe we, we have the treasure and we're protecting it, it's, well, what does the church need to say about climate change? We can point to Genesis. We have this doctrine. You know, what is there to know? And the other one, uh, you know, being more inductive and looking out into the world, you you can listen to scientists, you can get other perspectives, and then you know bring that into dialogue with this treasure that you have. Um, is, is that how we get to you know we have a, a papal encyclical on climate change? Because that was very controversial, particularly here in America, when that happened. People said, "What does the Pope have to say about this?" That's true. I think I think if um, if your point of departure is that it, that the issue isn't real. Or even if you would concede that it is real enough, but it's none of the church's business, then maybe uh, maybe it's uh, pretty hard to get into Laudato Si. Although Pope Francis doesn't—he never says believe this or you're finished. In fact, the uh, if you ask which which chapter um, spells out what we're supposed to do about. Uh, Environmental deterioration and poverty, because it's it's, it's all connected. Both cri- both cries: the cry of the poor and the cry of the earth. The 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 how to do chapter is all about dialogue, 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 dialogue. And I think very few of us would have thought, well, we're going to solve climate change or poverty by dialogue. Mm. But by the time we reach uh, Fratelli Tutti, you see, yes, that's the only way. Isn't that interesting? You know, like you've spent. Um, the vast majority of your ministry involved in uh, work for social justice and in applying the church's Catholic social teachings. And, you know, here we are now with Pope Francis for 10 years. We have, you know, a good sample size of how he sees the future of the mission of the church in the world, the application of what we believe to the world out there. And it starts with dialogue, which is like not some it's not like an action item like when i'm young and idealistic about changing the world i'm thinking about the march that i'm going to go on or i'm thinking about the petition that i'm going to sign um but he starts with and you just mentioned dialogue why is that disposition of dialogue so important and what does that do as a foundation or a cornerstone of the church's social action well it it overcomes uh, some of the polarities or dichotomies that were involved in your two examples of um, going on a march or signing a petition, you don't go on a march wondering about the whether your position is right or not, or who if somebody else might have something to tell you about it, and you don't sign a petition with that in, in mind either. You know, you're convinced. 
or you might not be totally convinced, but uh, your friends are convinced. Uh, anyway, this is your position, end of story. And uh, what the success would be if whoever's on the other side of the march or the petition would capitulate. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's all fine, um, except uh, experience shows it doesn't work. It's a, you know, it's a great theory, but it doesn't work. It's basically the, the theory that, that you can win conflicts and, and actually gain ground by it. And what Pope Francis and St. Francis teach is that conflict is self-destructive. Although, although if you're coming from a place of oppression, you know, and you need to step up, uh, you know, for yourself on behalf of yourself and others, and you're, you're coming from a position of voicelessness and powerlessness, um, sometimes that can feel like the only thing to do, you know? Well, uh, I would say you, you, you do need to figure out how to resist. I'm not sure you need to figure out how, how to overcome and, and win. So how does Pope Francis uh, define dialogue or how would he explain dialogue in this context? I think he would use uh, three words. Listen, listen, you got it. I know listen. where this is going. <laughs> I'm listening. The third one. Uh, uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't used this yet, but I'm sure he will someday. Listen until it hurts and then listen some more. Yeah. And, if, and, and just look back on your experience. I mean, if you feel that you have actually um, experienced what it means to bring the good news uh, to, if you've experienced the work of the Spirit, I suspect that you will say, yes, it's because I listened until it hurt. And, and once it stopped hurting, it's because I realized that I only have a fraction of, of the picture. Some people, that, that terrifies a lot of people. Me too. I don't enjoy it either. <laughs> <laughs> but from a you know perspective, you know, bring it back. Bring it back to climate change. It's like okay, if the church can listen to climate scientists and have that informed teaching, you know, that also means it could listen to you know uh, experts or competent authorities in matters of human sexuality or technology or artificial intelligence. And then you're admitting in some form. Or other that the church doesn't have all the answers or a monopoly on that's right but truth. but you one could reformulate your uh, your, your claim yes. a bit more helpfully yes um it's not the church's vocation to listen to climate scientists it's the church's vocation to listen to people who are suffering because of uh, extreme weather events it's not the same thing but the scientists have a a role to play in our uh, Christian reading of the signs of the times and in our uh, effort to accompany the poor. That's, that's our vocation. The climate scientists are mostly employed in talking to each other and to the UN. God bless them all. I don't think it's going to help much. But they have a very important contribution to make when people are ready to listen and when they are uh, ready to, to roll up their sleeves and do something about it. They say, well, let's, let's do something about it. Well, then uh, first in grasping the problem and then in finding solutions, we'd be fools not to, to avail ourselves of the best possible science, the best possible technology, the best possible finance, the best possible politics, all those things. But those are not our primary business. The, the business is starting with listening to the poor. It starts, it continues and finishes with listening to the poor. I was thinking the other sort of big concept, I was thinking dialogue this other big concept is that comes to my mind is evangelization. Like in all of these conversations that we're having now, and you mentioned the synod a few times, which is surfacing them more. So we're all 
the Catholics around the world are now talking to each other in this extraordinarily open way. And so all these issues are coming to the fore. But at the core of like of your book, of, of the things that we're talking about is really how do we understand the church's mission? Like you've talked about it as listening to the poor, but this concept of evangelization, which is the... Yeah, but but I think this is, this is the transition that our book tries to document also. You, you, you just said how to understand the mission. But the mission is not primarily something to understand, mm. you know. And and I think that we might have um, got ourselves into a sort of an intellectual knot over the council for for the first fifty years. And and Francis doesn't disagree with all of that. He just says, "Let's get on with something else. Let's get on hmm. with with implementing it." Now, Sebastian and I were talking. Um, this feels like a sort of um, intense time in the church, interesting time in the church, crazy time in the church, however you want to put it. Um, but, you know, we were mentioning earlier, we didn't, you know, we didn't live through the council. We don't have necessarily that historical perspective. Uh, is it as, you know, interesting as it seems right now? Yeah, I would say that, um, maybe I put it a bit differently, that um, there is no time when our salvation isn't at stake. There is no time when the, when the church can say, well, I, we've evangelized and now we don't need to. There is no time when, when sin takes a holiday and we don't need forgiveness and, and reconciliation. So um, maybe, maybe, again, the question is not answerable it, or it doesn't matter. What it does it ma matter? What does it matter? It's probably ego that wants the answer to that question. <laughs> it's like I am living through the most interesting. You've seen a lot of things, so give us some. Give us some advice. Give us some spiritual advice. That's um, very dangerous. That's very, especially <laughs> from a cardinal, from a Jesuit cardinal. Especially if you don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I, you know, I, I'm mostly not on the show, a host of the Jesuitical podcast. I'm usually in the background, but I'm I'm producing it with Zach and Ashley every week, and I know that our audience you know, appreciates going to a deeper spiritual level of these conversations. So, you know, if you try to tie a spiritual bow around what you're doing with this book and how we're trying to, you know, focus on living the church's mission as opposed to understanding it or talking about it, what's your advice? Well, I would say maybe just to take the, the title seriously, Siblings All, Sign of the Times. Siblings All, which is a translation of Fratelli Tutti, is, is interesting because in uh, in Italian we use there's an abstraction for this it's called fraternita and it's um, still practically totally acceptable to say fraternita and you mean men and women brothers and sisters but I don't think that's true in English anymore so uh, calling the book fraternity would have seem like it's for frats only, you know? Yeah, frat houses. <laughs> That's right. So siblings all is already, but it's interesting because in, in Italian, it's an abstraction, the idea of, whereas in English, it's more concrete. Siblings is not an abstraction, it's a name and it's, uh, it's concrete. And then it says sign of the times. Why is it a sign of the times? What does sign of the times mean? Sign of the times means a human reality that uh, the Holy Spirit illuminates for us so that we recognize Christ's desire to be incarnate there. That's what our sign of the times is. It's not a trend. It's not a fashion. It's not the cutting edge. 
It's not where you should invest if you want to make a lot of money. <laughs> it's not the latest headline of the week that we've really on this show. It's not either or this week take. or yeah. last week's or this week's headline. No, it's, it's, it's a spiritual, evangelical, human place. And um, I think that everybody listening to this show and many others who uh, already know they don't want to listen to this show are looking for that place. They want to meet Christ. Um, maybe more than anything else. But if uh, sign of the times isn't a possibility for them, then I, I think he's harder to meet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he regrets that. But he's very patient. Colonel Turney, you've been very generous with your time and coming on the show. And so thank you so much for, for joining us and also for all the work you're doing for the church. Um, before we let you go, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Pope Francis, because he's uh, implementing Vatican II. That is your boss, so it feels <laughs> a little... No, no, he's not my boss. No. He, <laughs> I would never call him my boss. He's not twisting your arm a little bit. <laughs> so Pope Francis. Yeah. All right. You wouldn't be the first on the podcast. No, a lot he, of he is but a very common answer. We're, yeah. we're in good company then. Yeah. Amen. So that once again, the book is Siblings All, Sign of the Times, The Social Teaching of Pope Francis. It is out from Orbis Books, and we will link to that in the show notes. Cardinal Turney, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. God bless you all. Sometimes I feel like crying, but the tears just won't fall. Sometimes I feel All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, so a couple things. Um, it is summer break after all. We, we're going to give a couple announcements. Um, the first is really exciting. We've got three copies of Cardinal Charney's book, Siblings All, Sign of the Times, The Social Teaching of Pope Francis, and the good news, they're signed by Cardinal Cherney. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in receiving, we have a deal for you. Yep. All you have to do is become a patron by going to patreon.com slash americamedia. Uh, then once we have a full list of people by the Feast of St. Ignatius on July 31st, 2023, we'll do a random drawing and three lucky patrons will get Cardinal Turney's book. Yeah. So if you are already a Patreon supporter, you don't got to do anything. Um, but if you'd like to be considered for that drawing, uh, help us out and visit patreon.com slash americamedia. Um, next, we have a listener survey that we would love your input put on. Um, It's going to be linked in the show notes. And I'll be honest, we really, really find these super valuable. So we oftentimes we've gotten show ideas, guest ideas from these. Um, It's your opportunity to tell us what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. It's just going to take a few minutes, um, whatever you can spare to fill that out a little bit. It's going to be super helpful. Yeah, and this year especially, we're planning to do a little mini Jesuitical retreat with me, Zach, and Sebastian, just to to look at where the show is, where we want to go. And so having your feedback as we go into those conversations would be so helpful. Yes. So please check it out in the show notes. So if you don't know what show notes are, if you're listening to the podcast, there's usually a little episode description. Um, It's going to be linked right there.
And finally, we have a sad goodbye to make. Cristobal Spielman has been giving production assistance to Jesuitical during this entire season as an O'Hare fellow here at America. So this will be the last episode that we're getting his assistance on. Yeah, Cristobal's been such uh, an all-star for the Jesuitical team. Um, He's you know, helped run the studio while we're recording. He's edited some of our videos, made those the autograms that you see on social media for us. I love those audiograms. They're so good. Yeah. So we're really going to miss Cristobal. Thank you so much for all you've done. Um, and we wish you well on your future endeavors. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, and this week, we're going to find God in this past season, do a little mini examine of, of where Jesuitical has been since September. Um, so, I, you know, we don't want to make this just like humble bragging about all the things we did, because it really is an opportunity to look back and, and look at the graces we've received through our work here in podcasting, as in on any job and any life, like you can get so bogged down in the day-to-day work that you lose sight of of the whole. And so I think um, the end of the season gives us a chance to to really look back and be grateful for the opportunities we've had. Yeah, you know, we started out the season um, going on a pilgrimage to Italy, which was um, obviously incredible in so many ways, but so much of that was just being able to meet um, Jesuitical listeners, um, meet new American Magazine readers, um, and really connect with them and pray with them and travel with them. Which is, you know, that is going to be a, a thing that sticks with me. Like, what a grace that was to be, you know, out on the road and like me- meeting with people face to face. Because you know, it gets a little lonely in the studio, mm-hmm. just just the two of us sometimes. So it's always good for us to get out there. But we've also had some really really great conversations on this podcast. Yeah, just a couple to highlight. We've been able to talk to uh, two bishops and two cardinals this season, which is pretty amazing to think about. One that was really special for us, I think, was talking to our own bishop, uh, Bishop Brennan of Brooklyn. Uh, he came in studio and was just a joy to talk to and to have. It's, it's a rare opportunity for Catholics to get that kind of face-to-face time with their bishop. And he was so receptive. Like I felt like at times he was kind of interviewing us to get young people's perspectives on, on the church. And so to have our voices valued like that by church leadership was really special. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to talk, we talked to Cardinal McElroy about um, inclusion in the church and we just talked to Cardinal Cherney. Um, It's kind of remarkable. I think, you know, when we started the show, we were just like, it felt like we were teenagers that no one would have let us near any church hierarchy (laughs) officials. But now uh, we're talking to them more frequently, which is a lot of fun. But it's not just bishops and cardinals. We've talked to some amazing sisters, um, Sister Elia Delio, Sister Jean, my my hero, my idol, um, uh, and some incredible lay people too. Uh, we had a great conversation with Luke Russert about travel and spirituality. And Father Ron Rollheiser was a real highlight for me. Love like that. Just like yeah. talking to those spiritual masters like him and Richard Rohr and just getting to pick their brains for all of their deep insight into our faith uh, is is. It's such a gift. Yeah, it's so funny. You know, I you you mentioned like in a job, it's so easy to get to like maybe it's finals, right? Like you're in grad school. My, my wife, I mentioned my wife's in finals right now, um, but maybe you're a student who's in finals. But you get to the end of this like really intense period, and you're just like ready to exhale and take a deep breath. Um, but pausing to just like look back at where God has been present in in this podcast, but you know, also in other parts of our lives. I think that's so easy to skip over because you just want to like get to the end of something and just like, finally, I'm going to turn my brain off and like watch paint dry or something. But um, it really is such like an important opportunity when you are resting to just be like, okay, God, where were you these past nine months? Yeah. And I feel like it also prepares me for the future because often I get to the beginning of a season and I'm like, 
like, what could I possibly still have that's interesting to say? What topics haven't we covered? What people haven't we talked to? And then you look back on our sixth season and you're like, oh, yeah, there's there's still a lot to talk about. <laughs> and so it makes me a little less nervous about doing that first episode in September, knowing that God has been working for the past year and he's going to be working in the year to come. You know, um, when we talked about doing sort of like an end of season exam, I was thinking more like in my personal life about like, what are the themes I noticed from talking to Father Eric every week? And the thing that I, is sticking with me, if I, if I have to pick one like through line is I feel like I have been learning what it's like to um, surrender control in my prayer life because I like to try to manipulate and control every single experience I have, I think. Um, and oftentimes, even when I have like a spiritual insight, I'll like go to talk to Father Eric about it. And I'm like, oh, I had this insight. And here's how I'm going to like, I don't know, optimize or employ it or use it. And it's been this constant learning of being like, you have no idea how God is going to work in your life. And so your your job is to kind of just like receive and and respond and not try to direct as much. That's been the thing that's sticking with me in my own personal life. Yeah. I would say one thing that's stuck with me is um, it's kind of connected to to the synod and this idea of just like bringing everything to the table. Uh, one of the more challenging conversations that, that for me that we had this season was our bonus episode talking about the Hulu documentary mm. about uh, it's called Pope Answers and it's Pope Francis having a very frank conversation with young people and I felt very challenged by the topics that we were bringing up that you know you felt uncomfortable <laughs> that he was ta- having yeah, these conversations yeah, let yeah. alone that we were having mm-hmm. the conversations and, and so our conversation with uh, <laughs> Father uh, Ricardo Da Silva and Jim McDermott uh, I really felt like I had to dig deep to be like it's it's okay to have this conversation and I feel like that's a a spirit I'm going to need to bring into the next step of the synod on synodality Mm. so I'm grateful that you know I had a dry run (laughs) on the podcast uh, getting used to uncomfortable conversations hey this is a brave space on this (laughs) podcast so all right well Zach cheers to another great season Uh, you are a great friend and podcast co-host and it's been it's been a good one thanks Ashley I've had this is still probably a favorite part of my job here in America so I'm glad we get to do this Um, we're not going away so we're as Ashley mentioned we're going to be having a little retreat uh, this summer so please pray for us Um, we're going to be coming back this fall uh, better than ever but a little older (laughs) all right cheers cheers Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Cristobal Spielman and Kevin Christopher Robles, who's also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you in the fall.